Hi there, this is Julie and this is Julie Clark Podcast. As mentioned in episode uh, two, we're still close to getting a name, formal name for the podcast. Uh, I came up with something today that I got really excited about. So we're just kind of doing some exploration around the possibilities of that as uh, a formal name for us. So stay tuned. Um, Today's episode is actually a review of a document that I was able to access from the, not exactly sure how I got it, Uh, I don't know if it was through Twitter, but it was in that frenzy last week when, um, last week being March, I think it was March 11th, 2018, 60 Minutes had that interview, Oprah did an interview uh, regarding developmental trauma or trauma-informed care and also interviewed Dr. Bruce Perry. And so I got my hands on a document by Beacon House Therapeutic Services and Trauma Team. And the article is entitled Developmental Trauma Close-Up. And I like how in the article they wrote that this is above all an article of hope. I just resonated with this in so many ways and thought it would be really helpful to do as an extension of my episode two podcast and still being on the high of the fact uh, a high around trauma-informed care being discussed at a national level it's just something um, that really excited me and um, so the article itself I can hopefully provide a link to you uh, to you all, a PDF document. To, to I'm just going to review highlights of it here today. It's 29 pages. It's it's a good read. It's an easy read, and there's graphics as well. I think it's really, really well done. And I think that it really helps to shape a context for the average person. You don't have to be a trauma therapist to under, understand this stuff. And um, so my hope and my goal here is to be able to go through with you in this episode the highlights of the article and then have you access it if you so desire and gain some additional uh, details. So the article, uh, as indicated here, was written by Dr. Shoshana Lyons and Dr. Catherine White, both clinical psychologists. It says here, with invaluable contributions from Ruth Stevens, an occupational therapist, and a special thank you to Helen Townsend, an adoptive parent, author, and illustrator for her artistic talent and flair. So I definitely want to give credit to them. The article also thanks um, a group of innovative psychologists and psychiatrists who have pioneered research into the impact of early trauma and who have developed therapies to repair and heal. To name a few are Bessel van der Kolk, Bruce Perry, Daniel Hughes, Stephen Porges, Patricia Crittenden, Alan Shore, and Daniel Siegel. So let's get started. As mentioned, the article is entitled Developmental Trauma Close-Up. They reference in the article, a a previous article entitled The Repair of Early Trauma, a bottom-up approach. And in this article, which I'll see if I can get my hands on it, I don't currently have it, but it described Bruce Perry's neurosequential approach to working with early trauma. 
So full disclosure, I don't have the training in the neurosequential approach. My trauma training and introduction into doing trauma work, um, I sought out the work of uh, Dr. Peter Levine, and he does uh, somatic experiencing. So uh, in June of 2018, I'll be completed that process and um, have been working with a trauma-informed lens even prior to doing the, starting the training in 2016. Um, so the article takes a close look at the developmental trauma uh, aspects. It talks about seven pieces of a jigsaw, what they look like at home and school. So I'll just give a couple examples of each of those and also what parents or carers can do to help. So the first question then becomes, okay, well, who can suffer developmental trauma? And if you listened to my episode two, I spoke about having empathy towards others who have an experience that for them is their own experience and it could be labeled trauma. We don't have um, a specific barometer that says, you know, this experience for this person equals this kind of trauma. And so today's article that I'm reviewing here speaks specifically about something called developmental trauma. And so uh, there's, you know, this idea that if parents or carers, if their child is too, rem uh, too young to remember certain events that could be classified as traumatic, maybe, you know, they were caught in a burning home, for example, um, that they're too young to remember. But what we know now is that indeed that's not true. In fact, even unborn babies can suffer trauma to their developing mind and body when they're in the womb. If mom is in a violent relationship with a partner, for example, or if she used substances. And so research shows that a history of severe trauma in parents can actually change an unborn baby's genetic makeup. And then trauma during pregnancy means that the baby is then hardwired to be oversensitive to life stresses. And so by working with children and youth through a developmental trauma-informed lens and understanding that, and we'll get into a little bit more, but understanding that the way that we look at certain behaviors in a child, it's really, really important to realize that we may not always have the whole story. We don't know the bigger picture, you know? If Johnny's sitting in the classroom and he's experienced many different life-altering experiences up until you started to teach him. And this isn't picking on teachers. I'm just giving a context that a lot of people can relate to, which is that their child goes to school or they know someone who goes to school. or um, And there's behavior in the classroom. We don't know what is bringing forward that behavior. And so understanding... A developmental or trauma-informed lens is as the episode if you had a chance to watch the 60 minutes interview with Oprah very much explains we're not asking you know I forget specifically what it was not asking why why are you doing that but more like what happened to you I don't know offhand the exact terminology but um, so moving on so not only is there p the potential for a 
an unborn baby's genetic makeup be affected by trauma, they may not, the child may not actually remember the experience, but what's really, really important to know, and this is really key in my somatic experiencing work, is that their body freezes the memory in time. And that this leads to their developmental going off track. And so developmental trauma is described as the impact of early repeated abuse, neglect, separation, and adverse experiences that happens within the child's important relationships. And again, I'll refer back to episode two of my podcast where Dr. Perry spoke about the importance of key positive adult relationships as being one of the main factors to helping children heal through trauma. So understanding that the impact of an experience was too much, too fast, when we talk about an experience freezing in the memory of the body, or the body freezes the memory, sorry. There was an experience that came too much. It was too big. It was too fast, and it overwhelms the body and the brain. And so the physiology, the body, is is actually impacted. And so it may not be something that is conscious. And so asking that question, why did you do that, it's not even something that children have the capacity to understand themselves. They just know that there's a certain feeling going going on on the inside. It's almost like the experience is coded or trapped in the body, and it's the body's way of protecting the body by going into this like freeze state, essentially. So traumatized children do and can develop a range of unhealthy coping strategies, which essentially is them believing that these strategies will help them to stay alive. They also struggle with developing essential daily living skills, how to manage their impulses, their urges, how to solve problems, different executive functioning abilities. So... This then starts to get into a little bit of basic brain talk. So it talks about a child who is in danger operates out of their primitive brain. And Dan Siegel has a really great uh, YouTube video that you could look up. It's called, I think it's called Upstairs Brain and Downstairs Brain. And it's a really kind of cool way. I use it in my practice for older kids so that they can begin to understand what's actually happening in their brain, you know, in moments of worry or anxiety and so you could look that up so that old reptilian primitive part of the brain that's responsible for our not just children but adults as well our survival system so for any of those who are listening who have maybe struggled with anxiety in the past uh, or worked with a therapist or have done any Studying on the brain, our survival system is wired to have us respond to danger in three ways, one of three ways, or not just one, but there's three ways, fight, flight, or freeze. 
And another really great resource, just as I'm chatting with you, is Anxiety BC in British Columbia, Canada. They have a really, really great um, website. It's super colorful, really really well laid out. And if you go in there and type in, I believe in the search, uh, Fight, Flight, and Freeze, you'll find a really great explanation of those three responses. So that's a helpful resource for you too. So the problem for traumatized children is that when they transition into a safe environment, the survival responses do not turn off. So the body's way of protecting the body, it doesn't recognize when there's developmental trauma, it doesn't recognize a safe environment. It's like the gas pedal is on and it stays on. And when a child is moved away from their unsafe environment, we logically think with our adult brains, we logically think, okay, this is going to help them. And it does. That's not what I'm saying. But the, part, the reason for this article is to really help us to delve into understanding why that doesn't just allow the child to settle, why it doesn't allow the child to ease up on the gas pedal, being on and super sensitive to, to things happening around them. And so the child stays in survival mode. And so small everyday things like moving from one classroom to another or a slightly raised voice is actually a signal for life and death or danger for them. A traumatized child is, and this is really important, a traumatized child is developmentally stuck in their primitive reptilian brain. They're stuck there. And as a consequence to that, very little information can get passed up to the higher parts of the brain where rationalization happens. All their resources are used up just to stay alive physically and also staying in the minds of their adults. And that's where some attachment stuff comes in, which they'll talk about that a little bit later on. So what that means is that there's very little left over. When a child is stuck in survival mode, there's very little left over for the development, and they call it luxuries here. Uh, And they call the luxuries (laughs) not things, but actual everyday processing, learning and integrating and retaining new information, the ability to reason, the ability to share with siblings or peers, have empathy, or a sense of the intentions of adults as being positive or neutral. So I hope that that makes sense and that it's clear around that aspect of even when a child is in a safe environment, why it is that they're still struggling. So the seven pieces of the puzzle for developmental trauma are sensory development, dissociation, attachment development, emotional regulation, behavioral regulation, cognition, and self-concept and identity development. And so 
these seven pieces of the puzzle, they've done a really great job on each of the um, explanations. Like I said, there's a lot of great images and a lot more detail, but I'm just going to touch on them just for the sake of length for this podcast. And so sensory development. Infants and toddlers have not yet developed language to make sense of their experiences. When a traumatized child is feeling stressed, they may have a sensory flashback, which means that they re-experience the bodily feeling of immediate danger. So remember the body's protecting the body. And there's no way for them to make sense of that sense of immediate danger. And they can't communicate it verbally. The memory of it has no actual language attached to it. So, so often we ask our kids, why did you do that? And, you know, the child will say, I don't know. Or maybe they'll, they've learned to overcompensate and adapt and give you a response, which is what they think you want to hear. Or the response that will get them out of trouble. I mean, we see this all the time. And so catching ourselves asking that question, why did you do that? Because asking that question is coming from our rational brain, which if we get a response that makes sense to us, then I suppose, you know, that tells us how we consequence or how we handle the situation or it just helps us to understand um, the situation better. But the child simply does not have the language to be able to ask that. And when I say, like it talked about infants and toddlers have not yet developed their language, what we'll find out later on is that um, the traumatic experiences can actually render the child stuck. And so you may have a 15-year-old that emotionally has the development of a toddler that, again, is not going to be able to answer that question. So just keeping that in mind. Um, and it talks about how traumatized children with sensory problems cannot regulate their fear response or their body's reaction to fear, nor can they regulate their primitive bodily functions. So primitive being that fight, flight, or freeze instinct that comes, that they're not turning that on. It is absolutely happening in a very split second that they have no control over. And it can be very, very overwhelming, like a racing heart, for example. So signs of sensory problems at home, uh, strong dislike for certain foods or textures is one example. Uh, at school, difficulty with concentration and attention is another example. And so as I read this, I realize that I probably should qualify um, what I'm saying here is that what's so important in this episode or any episode that the information that you receive from the podcast, it's not intended to be something that you consume and then sort of mesh into assessing or diagnosing your own child, or it's not intended to be a message that is pointing a direction towards anything that you as a parent or caregiver may be doing that is wrong. That's not my intention here at all. I really do just want to share this information for further context for what can be a complicated thing to understand. Um, so just be really careful. And I say that because when I read difficulty with concentration and attention, I mean, there's a lot of kids sitting in class that have, you know, 
difficulty with concentration and attention that maybe didn't eat a good breakfast. And so we don't want to, trauma isn't the experience for all kids. And so we don't want to, you know, hear this information, read this information, and then turn it into something that isn't our child's experience because um, there is a difference. And so it's important to, to just know that as we go through here. Um, and also, if you want to take out a pen and a piece of paper and write down some questions, I welcome uh, your questions. Julie at JulieClarkTherapy.com. Uh, and that's Clark with an E. So the second piece of the developmental trauma puzzle is dissociation. And dissociation is a survival mechanism. All humans have this natural ability to mentally leave the room. And again, it's the body's way of protecting the body. That's going to be the general theme throughout this. And it enables us or the, the child to be able to keep going in the face of overwhelming fear. It's a survival instinct. Uh, so dissociation is a separation or disconnection between thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and a separation between the mind and body. An example is a child may remember a traumatic event but have no feelings attached to the memory or may show challenging behavior but have no memory behind the behavior. Maybe they have a stomach ache but feel no anxiety underneath it. These different parts of the child's experience is of course connected but they learn to survive by becoming unaware of the connections. And so I'll just add, through the lens of my somatic experiencing training, it's this aspect that we work with in, in our renegotiation of the trauma and helping to make those connections. And it's really interesting because um, it, the, the kids just get it, you know, they just, they're able to connect to the body sensations. It takes a bit of time. Sometimes I'm, you know, giving them that language in terms of, oh, does it feel prickly in your stomach? Or does it feel colorful? And if so, what color is it? Or is it fuzzy or fluffy? And so that helps them to connect with their, their bodily sensations. Um, so it also talks about, because memories are fragmented into lots of little pieces by dissociation, children can often have a flashback to a memory a feeling, a behavior, or a physical pain with no understanding of why or what triggered it. And so uh, sometimes when I'm contacted by a family member, um, they've been able to trace back something that they suspect based on knowing their child best that may have triggered it. Maybe it was bullying in the schoolyard. Um, but oftentimes it's the child's not going to be able to put words to it as much as um, my job is to work, is to help them work through it and can make that connection again. <coughs> Excuse me. And that connection being the, um, the bodily sensations. All they know is that they feel an immediate danger and how frightening or how scary is that, Right. You wouldn't like it as an adult. <laughs> um, and also, 
from a child's perspective, they don't realize that their experience isn't the same as everybody else's. They think that it is. That's all they know. Uh, so just to sum up, dissociation is the child's brain uh, working towards keeping them safe by momentarily removing them from the perceived threat that is happening. And so signs of dissociation at home, maybe the child appears as if he or she is not listening to requests from the parent, um, which again, to put it in context, I mean, maybe your child just didn't listen on Tuesday because they didn't want to go to band practice or something. Again, it doesn't mean that they're dissociating. So we have to put it into context. And I really do think it's within your best interest for listeners to access the full document that I'm that I'm reading from so that you can get that full context fully and completely. Um, so that was a sign of dissociation at home. A sign of dissociation at school would be um, the child's forgetful or confused uh, about things that they should know, such as a friend's name, for example. So moving on, uh, number three of the puzzle, developmental trauma puzzle, is attachment development. And so this has a pretty elaborate explanation. Um, and attachment theory is pretty, um, it can be, like I said, pretty elaborate. But it's also really important when, uh, I think it's really important when working with children and youth and understanding um, actually, even with adults, if we, we, uh, we look back at their attachment styles and um, those early caregiver relationships because they're templates for future relationships, and so they're, they're really important. So this one, this one would be a really good one to make sure you're accessing the full information on the article, which I guess I'll throw that out there again, uh, is through Beacon House Therapeutic Services. And I don't think I gave their website. It's uh, Beacon House, so B-E-A-C-O-N-H-O-U-S-E dot org, O-R-G dot U-K forward slash useful dash resources. So U-S-E-F-U-L dash R-E-S-O-U-R-C-E-S forward slash. So attachment development, um, children who start life in a frightening or neglectful environment or who are removed at birth adapt to their environment, which obviously we're thankful for that. Children learn from as early as a few months old that certain behaviors like crying or sleeping keep danger at bay and other behaviors increase the chances of danger. They therefore develop a range of attachment strategies to prevent harm and danger but also to keep a parent's carer as close as possible, even if the parent or carer is also the danger. And that's the key thing that really complicates uh, when the parent or carer is the danger, which I'm not going to get into. <laughs> um, so essentially, this is uh, when Dr. Patricia Crittenden uh, talks about some of her um, research. Attachment is not the problem, she says. Danger is the problem. Attachment is the solution. So I really love that. That's how important attachment is. So I'm not going to go into the specifics there, but just give an example of attachment insecurity at home would be avoidance of emotional intimacy or emotional uh, overspilling, and at school, difficulties processing new information. Emo emotional regulation number four 
It's a skill that children learn in their early childhood. It means that by the time they are around six or seven, they know how to notice they are having an emotional reaction and they know what that reaction is and they can express it in a healthy and clear way. They can also manage the emotion well so that they can start to feel calm. They can regulate. I want that cookie. No, you can't have that cookie. And then regulating, you know, the fact that they didn't get that. There's, there's an ease to that, that for some children, it's not easy. <laughs> and you may hear this and go, oh, that is not my child at all. And so just that ability to, to emotionally regulate. And um, again, it doesn't mean your child's traumatized if they can't do this. But um, this is something we work a lot on in as therapists is that just regulating emotions and adults struggle with this too. They just do. Um, So babies and toddlers cannot regulate their emotions. They rely on the parent or carer to co-regulate. And I even go as far to say as a therapist, there is a certain amount of co-regulating that I'm doing in the therapy room and the clinical space as well. Research has shown that the therapeutic relationship that we as therapists develop with our client is when that's well-developed, the results are greater, more positive results come from that. And so that's essentially me being a co-regulator as well. Um, Yeah, so it helps to train their brain in how to respond to, and also how to respond to emotions in the future. So this co-regulation helps babies to learn that their feelings are okay, uh, that their feelings are manageable. Like, you can tolerate me when I'm in this space. That's huge, right? Like some of these kids, they're coming to you and, or they're breaking down in the classroom, but there's shame that comes out because they don't know why they're behaving a certain way. And they need to know that you as the co-regulator, the adult, the parent, the carer, can accept them for being in that state because it's scary for them. And so to not have that acceptance is even scarier, almost intolerable, actually, which could lead to dissociation, actually. (laughs) And this is where it talks a little bit about, I touched on this earlier, where it said that... uh, If emotional regulation does not develop as it should, it gets stuck in the toddler phase of emotional regulation where they can't do it alone and they need adults to co-regulate for them. In children with developmental trauma, be they 7, 9, 15 years old, their brain's ability to regulate their emotions is quite literally the same as a 3-year-old's. So the emotional need is hidden when we're looking at behavior as attention-seeking. And I think I said in my episode too that I never really resonated with that. It confused me because to me, I was like, okay, well, pay attention. (laughs) So that's essentially what we're saying here is that uh, we need to pay attention, but we need to pay attention through a trauma-informed lens and realize that the emotional need, they're not able to articulate that. It could even be stuck. Yes, you have a 15-year-old that's acting like a three-year-old. We need to step in and co-regulate. So it says here, it may be helpful to think of the child as attachment-seeking instead of attention-seeking. So some signs of emotional dysregulation at home, prolonged meltdowns over small things, emotional dysregulation at school, 
immaturity in friendships, jealousy, possessiveness, struggles to share. Which, to some degree, that's an issue as well. And I keep coming back to this only, again, just for the context aspect of it, but uh, immaturity in friendships, that, that does develop, you know, in time. And if it's tipping into severely affecting quality of life both for the child the youth and your family then that's when we need to start looking at it more through the lens of not understanding what trauma it could have been but just seeing it through a developmental trauma uh, trauma informed lens so that we can understand it or come from a different perspective number five is behavioral regulation I love this one I talk about window of tolerance all the time in my practice um it's definitely become a key piece of the psychoeducational work that I do, the information that I share with, with clients um, so that they understand what the goal is, what we're working towards. And so um, for traumatized children, small everyday things like a parent's request to brush their teeth can spiral them out of their window of tolerance. And so then it goes on to talk about how there is a state of physical and emotional arousal that is tolerable and bearable and when a child is within his or her window of tolerance. And again, this isn't just a child. This is, this is adults too. I mean, we as adults have windows of tolerance. Absolutely we do. Um, and when a child or an adult is within their window of tolerance, they can think, they can learn, they can love, they can connect, they can relax. So we need to, as adults, take a step back and ask ourselves, you know, when are we best doing our best thinking, our best integrating from the things that we're learning? When are we best able to connect with our important relationships? That would be a good indication that you're in your window of tolerance. And once you know that, then you can also be aware of and notice when you're stepping out of that. You know, maybe you didn't eat breakfast because you were running late that morning. People will often say, oh, I just started off as a bad day and the whole day was a bad day. Well, you know, it started off as a bad day because maybe you missed breakfast, but you can turn that around. And how do you do that? You realize it, number one, notice it. And number two, take action. So if it is, in fact, as obvious as you didn't eat breakfast, then you know what? Your number priority, number one priority is in that moment. Get some food into you. Get some nutrition. Get your body moving and and get some fuel in there. And uh, so it's really important that we know our window of tolerance as well. So in terms of behavioral regulation, outside our window of tolerance, we're working now with the physiology, with the autonomic nervous system. And so we start talking about that hyperarousal state, that fight or flight, that primitive reptilian brain response. Um, like, oh, I, I've worked in schools before where kids just, they just run. They just run. And the biggest piece to that is trying to keep them safe so that they're not running into traffic. Um, so that would be an example of a hyper-aroused state. Screaming, hitting, shouting, biting, spitting, hurtful words, avoidance, squirming, disruption. Those are all examples of a fight-flight or hyper-arousal outside of the child's window of tolerance state. Um, and then on the other spectrum is the hypoarousal. So that is the parasympathetic nervous system. And examples of that are complete shutdown. 
Uh, so you'll see the posture, the head, the shoulders. Uh, that would even be an example of the hoodie coming up and, and or the long hair over the face, like pulling away from isolating, really difficult to connect, uh, difficult to think, uh, no appetite, maybe shaking, just appearing to be zoned out. Those are examples of uh, being outside of your window of tolerance. So one can expect traumatized children to be over or under aroused for most of the time. And in either state, their behavior is out of their hands. They simply cannot control no matter how hard they try. Their brain is not wired right and they do not have the ability to shut off the behavior. They are in automatic survival mode. They cannot think, reason, or rationalize when feeling under threat. And so that's why it's so important to get the thinking brain back online through understanding the window of tolerance and when they're inside their window of tolerance. And it can also be helpful to remember that at the core of a trauma experience is a loss of control. And so when they're in automatic survival mode, that absolutely is a, a sense of loss of control. They're not doing it because they want to. They're doing it because they're nervous system is overwhelmed and it's responding to what is perceived as threat. Some examples of behavior dysregulation at home, overeating or undereating, uh, dysregulation at school, disruptive in class. Number six is cognition. Um, there's not a whole lot of discussion about this in here. It's pretty, pretty basic and self-explanatory. Uh, children who are traumatized often struggle with underdeveloped cognitive skills so things like planning ahead problem solving organizing themselves learning from their mistakes are very difficult for them and this again is that they're stuck in that that primitive brain and all their resources are literally them trying to stay safe in their environment and whether or not the adults around them can be trusted or not Oh, I didn't mention this, but there was a sheet that actually spoke about um, when it introduced the seven pieces of the puzzle. Uh, it broke down um, one, two, and three areas of development for the brain. So it talked about the primitive brain, which is what we're referring a lot to here, um, and how that develops first. And then it talks about the limbic brain, how that develops second. And there's a cute little uh, diagram here. Uh, that's where attachment and, and emotional development begin to develop. And then the third level is the cortical brain, which is that thinking, learning, language, and, and inhibiting piece. Um, so some examples of cognitive uh, struggles, poor cognitive skills at home, unable to learn from mistakes, which I already said, uh, forget complicated instructions, black and white thinking, Poor cognitive skills at school, struggling to complete a task, cannot put into words what they are thinking. And as I read this, I even think about children who have learning disabilities. You know, again, it's not a traumatic experience, but it, it might be a learning disability. And that's why it's so imperative that if you as a parent or a carer are suspecting or um, seeing some of these examples of things that are going on at home or at school if, if you're seeing some of these in your child 
work with a professional. It doesn't have to just be a psychotherapist. It could be um, your school counselor. It could be an occupational therapist. It could be your family doctor. But just having this information, this knowledge is so helpful so that, I mean, the worst thing we can do is just, you know, and I use the words, I use the names Johnny and Susie a lot in examples when I talk. So there's no actual Johnny and there's no actual Susie. But um, when, you know, Johnny's misbehaving in class and sometimes parents step back and they're confused as to, you know, is this, is this something we need to worry about or is this uh, a one-off? And so my suggestion would be is if it's ongoing and it's really starting to affect not just your child but your home life, then you need to reach out to other professionals that are, that are around you. Um, it doesn't just have to be a therapist. And maybe, in, you know, in, in, as I was saying, maybe it's a learning disability that your child's struggling with. Um, I think this is the last one. Yeah, self-concept and identity development. Um, so our self-concept starts forming from the very first messages we receive about ourselves from the adults in our lives. And that's why I said earlier, when I work with adults, we need to take a step back into time and understand those early caregiver relationships so that we can see how those early templates that are developed, they really become how we are in uh, future relationships. And so um, that's the self-concept aspect that it's talking about here. And so um, if children get the message that they are not worth keeping safe, that they are disposable, or that their crying pushes others away, their self-concept will reflect this. No matter how many times they are told that they are wanted, loved, and even though their head might know this, their heart is struck, their heart is stuck in trauma. It says their heart is stuck in trauma time here. I like that. Uh, and chronically traumatized, uh, traumatized children often feel confused and lost. They don't feel like they belong. Uh, often search for some validation from others that they are deep down okay. And I mean, what comes to mind when I read this is just the um, the pursuit of reaching out and connecting to others in the form of a gang comes out. You know, if they're connecting and getting that validation from others, that feeds a need, it fills a need, a primitive need in them as a human being that wasn't met or isn't being met for them. And so that's just one example that comes to mind for me. Um, and it says here, this can make the child very vulnerable to being exploited in relationships or present as social butterflies fitting between friends and groups to try and, uh, to try and fit in. Um, so just being aware of that too. Signs of poor self-concept and identity development at home, not feeling worthy of accepting love and nurture. There's that safe environment piece that we were talking about that even though it's being offered, the child just cannot lean into it. They can't sink into that. Uh, and at school, being knocked down or knocked back easily, um, appearing to not be able to uh, accept. Maybe circumstances, they get stuck. There's that stuck again. So it talks about how mental health symptoms uh, are a part of an overall picture of developmental trauma. So they're not, 
you know, treating anxiety just as anxiety is not recommended. Treating uh, just nightmares is not recommended. But when we look at, take a step back and we look at the, the bigger picture, we see that mental health symptoms are a part of the overall trauma-informed lens. So what's so exciting, I guess, as I read this and I realize, I think why I got so excited when I heard about the Bruce Perry, uh, Oprah Winfrey 60 Minutes interview was the fact that if we can intervene, this is good news. We can make a difference in this child's life. I've, you know, over time people have said, I think it's too late to help Johnny or Susie. And I'm like, it's not too late. It's not. And so the article then goes on to talk a little bit about what you can do. And so, um, as I mentioned in episode two, relationships heal relational relationship trauma. Um, if the right intervention is offered at the right time in the right order and over a long period of time. So that's where a commitment on your part is going to come in. It's going to take time to, to work through some of these things, um, this developmental trauma. And children are resilient and adaptable. And so neuroscience is showing us all the time that the brain is flexible and open to being re-sculpted if given the opportunity. And that's the amazing, amazing platform that 60 Minutes brought forward in that interview is that there is such a huge opportunity to be able to help these kids where it was once thought that, well, not once thought, but it wasn't understood the neuroplasticity in the brain and its capabilities where now we know this through neuroscience and we know that these key relationships and um, interventions are really, really important. So just as I get ready to wrap up, this is turning into a really long episode. Um, Sorry about that, everyone. I'm kind of all over the place with my episodes. Um, This is only my third episode and I'm still just trying to figure out how all this is going to go. And uh, I promise to to be a little bit more consistent. But if you're still listening, I really appreciate your time. Uh, So what can you do as a parent or a caregiver? Oh, this is huge. Survival, self-care. And so take a look at all your demands and all your resources. If your demands and your resources are not in balance, meaning your demands outweigh your resources, you need to start looking at rebalancing that, reducing your demands, whatever's happening in your life, and increase your resources. And so this is going to take a little bit of time. And what's really important here is that you can choose not to feel guilty if instead of doing the chores, you're going for a walk or you're going for coffee with a friend. And so it gives some really nice examples of how it's almost like giving you permission to not put all of your, the demands of of living with, of raising, of being involved in the life of a traumatized child. Every waking hour cannot be dedicated to helping that child because that, the more you do, it's not going to make it better. It just means that your resources are decreasing. And ultimately, um, if you look at it as you being the foundation or the building blocks for the entire family, you see it through a new lens, which is that, you know, if I build my resources and I'm strong and stable and healthy, then ultimately my child is going to be as well.
Um, and I'm actually having a guest interview with, oh, when's that going to be in May, I think, with, um, with someone around the self-love. So I'm looking forward to that. It's, it's a pretty big deal, actually. Um, so then it talks about safety and mastery. It talks about how uh, it might be worth keeping a note of your joy moments to authentically remember through tricky periods. Um, you know, building that sense of safety with the traumatized child um, and their capacity to master those skills and then find joy in that. But knowing that for the traumatized child, this is risky. This is very risky. And um, it says here, we can think of these, we can think of these joy moments and they keep both parent and care and child going in terms of finding togetherness. And what that does is it's rewarding enough to risk keep doing it. And there's that co-regulator. You're co-regulating them navigating into territory that they don't know what exists on the other side of the ocean. And it's scary because they have to get through the ocean first. And so you're co-regulating that. And they're going to figure out if your the relationship is worth the risk or not. And if it's not... They won't engage. They won't connect. If it is, you'll be able to continue to, in small leaps, build that capacity, build that sense of mastery so that they can risk keep, that they can risk continuing to do it. It also talks about how it's really important for um, you to understand how to help and be that co-regulator. So by observing and trying different things out in time, between you and the child or youth, you can discover which strategies, activities help calm your child because it's going to be different for you. It's going to be different for every single child. Um, essentially, it's going to help wake them up from being shut down. And it takes practice, patience, and persistence. And then there's a little chart that is uh, regulatory ideas. And so it talks about how do you spot flight? When is a child in flight? How do you spot fight? How do you spot freeze? And it gives examples of how to ground flight. And so I wanted to read to you all. Um, yeah, there's a grounding technique that's pretty popular, actually. is uh, It's called the 54321 grounding method for anxiety. So five, start with five. Think of five things you can see and label them in your mind. So maybe a clock on the wall, a desk, a phone, four. And you're doing these uh, one after the other. So five, four, three, two, one. And this is a grounding technique. So if you're starting to see your child um, maybe talking baby talk or silly voices or maybe they're being aggressive, um, you might try uh, a grounding technique like five, four, three, two, one. Um, and number four then becomes four things you can touch. So number five is five things you can see. Number four is four things you can touch, which is like even the smoothness of your skin. Uh, number three is listen to the world around you. Bring awareness to the sounds. These are, this activity is very senses-based, and that's helping them to get back into their body. And number two is that sense of um, smell. So 
maybe there's gum. I use gum in my office and there's so many different aspects that we can use gum as a coping strategy. And so children like gum, they like the smell of it. Uh, maybe it's a special container that you have up in the cupboard and they, in times of starting to notice a little distress, that's something that they go to and they take some time to ground and into the smell. You could do all of the five, four, three, two, one in, in just with, uh, with gum. Uh, and then number one is uh, find something you can taste. So going to an apple or a um, piece of celery or something like that. Um, so repairing that relationship. And the reason why this is huge, I think, too, is because we're not perfect. And there's nothing in any of this research. There's nothing in any of this uh, training that says that as a parent or a caregiver that you have to be perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. None of us are perfect. And so recognizing that first and foremost and not trying to achieve perfection, you'll burn yourself out trying to attain that. Um, but Daniel Hughes talks about how when you make a mistake, fix it. So just recognize that, uh, I mean, this obviously is not in the realm of abusive actions and a lack of love and nurture. It's not the same context. But if, if you happen to raise your voice to your child, then it's important to recognize that that is a rupture in the connection. It potentially is a trigger for that traumatized child. So your awareness of that is the stopping and noticing that there was disconnection and you need to come back and make a repair there. And so uh, it talks about how to do that. So offering a hug. Um, naming the feeling, saying you're sorry. And then that returns you and the child to the relationship where you're attuned once again and there's connection. It also mirrors how to be in relationship with someone when, you know, that imperfection comes up and how to make it better. And those are really great life skills too. And so, uh, yeah, so continuing to relate with your child and uh, through play and words and gestures. All things that you can do as a parent or care caregiver for a traumatized child. So know that you will take steps forward and you will take steps back. It doesn't mean that your hard work has done disarray or that it's there's no progress. It absolutely is. In fact, it's normal to, to, to go forward and step back. And so know that um, there are developmental gaps in your child's foundation and they need to be filled before you can get to the next, the next stage. And so that is absolutely going to take time. Uh, so looking at things through an understanding and acceptance that all behavior is a form of communication. Uh, working towards the right balance of nurture and structure for your family. So Ask yourself or recognize, reflect when you get pushed, when you get triggered by the behavior from your traumatized child or the traumatized child. Or if you're an adult listening to this and you don't have a child, but you see aspects of maybe your behavior that you pull back, you withdraw or you give up on things or um, you put harsh boundaries or punishments on yourself. Where do you go when things get really difficult for you? And so knowing where you go is a number one step to staying connected to important relationships in your life and most especially with a traumatized child. So there's a little write-up about that. Uh, so suggesting that seeking help as early as possible, prevention is better than crisis response for the child and their adults. Uh, the earlier the intervention, 
parents, caregivers are very intuitive. Uh, adults are very intuitive to the um, that something is off. And so really listening to that and recognizing that. Um, and I, that's mostly it. It does talk about the how the neurosequential model works really well for repairing early trauma. So of course, anyone who's interested in that, by all means, just because I'm not trained in it doesn't mean that it's not good. Um, what does it say here? Oh, I like this. An essential part of the model and the Beacon House way of understanding what helps is John Bowlby's statement, Bowlby being B-O-W-L-B-Y, that if we value our children, we must cherish their parents. We know that great therapists can make a real difference to children's lives, but a parent or a carer who feels valued and empowered to keep taking the risk of offering love, care, consistent presence, and boundaries to their traumatized child can change the world. And that's huge because often parents will internalize that somehow they're a bad parent or something that they're doing is terribly bad, but that is just simply not the case. And so reaching out for help is a really great way to admitting that you're not perfect and that you can't do anything. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with reaching out for help. So uh, all right, so I'm going to wrap that up. Like I said, sorry, that was a bit of an, a marathon session that you may want to come back and listen to in parts. But um, again, uh, beaconhouse.org.uk. They have a Twitter and Facebook page at Beacon House Team. And so I will also try and do my best to post the PDF uh, where the podcast is housed, which I'm still getting used to how to do that. Thankfully, I have my helper, Pat, <laughs> who uh, I'm very grateful for, who's been helping me uh, pull all this stuff together. So thanks for joining me. It's Julie Clark signing off, and we'll see if episode four, if I'm introducing a new name for my podcast. And uh, looking forward to some guest interviews that I have lined up from now until May. And we will chat with you then. Bye for now.